Playing with Hire, the HR podcast which works well. Presented by Nick Coffer with Alice Bromwich. Into episode four we go on Playing with Hire, the HR podcast that, well, tries to work well with Alice Bromwich, owner of HR consultancy Peony and Magnolia. So far in this series, we've explored the impact of domestic abuse in the workplace, looked at how to manage life events uh, for employees and worked through the nuts and bolts of having a solid and holistic, Alice, is a fair point, uh, a holistic HR setup in your business. So let's look today at the question of inclusion, Alice. This seems to me a big topic. So off the bat, what does that mean? It is a big topic, Nick, and actually one that I thought about quite carefully before including it in sort of the agenda. Um, inclusion to me, now I have written about this before. Um, I haven't mentioned in any of the other episodes that I uh, produce a HR magazine called Expresso. Now, there are two issues where um, I have talked about neurodiversity and inclusion, but understanding your own standpoint. Um, So I think that that's what, for me, when we talk about inclusion, that's where we have to start. We have to start with our own understanding of how we see the world. Um, what I mean from that is that, you know, I am a white female of a certain age and I 42. have 42. Yeah, I am quite. Was I not meant to say that? So I'm I, fine I, being I just 42. had a moment just came to me. and I... <laughs> um, uh, Yes. And that my experiences have been formed throughout the life that I've had. They my viewpoints are from or through my own lenses. Now, there can be a 42-year-old female who is Asian. I don't and haven't experienced the same things as that other person. I can be a 42-year-old man who's white, and I haven't experienced the same. So my point being is when we talk about inclusion, before you talk about it, you really need to stop and understand how you see the world. And because this goes to the heart of how we see the world and it goes to the heart of how other people see us and experience us, this is a very emotive subject, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and you know, why I hesitated in bringing this to the agenda was that I am not a diversity and inclusion specialist. And I want to say that because there are people who are incredibly talented in bringing this conversation into the workplace. What I am is an ally of those conversations. And that is where I kind of wanted to bring this conversation to many is because I feel that this is where we all have the ability to challenge discrimination or to question inclusion even though we're not specialists in that area, because we all have the ability to use our voices. And yet it's been enshrined in law for years and years now that the the workplace has to be fair. But in HR, you're still seeing cases after cases after cases when it isn't. Why is that still happening? We do. We do keep seeing, and you're absolutely right, discrimination still occurs. And this may not be direct discrimination, you know, indirect discrimination, words, tones, voices, you know, things that other people say actually 
can still be discrimination and somebody can bring indirect discrimination claims because of the environment that they work in that it then hasn't been challenged or someone raises that actually I don't like that tone or the language that a person uses um, and it continues. So that's about challenging the discrimination and trying to um, bring a more inclusive culture and way of working. So let's look at what inclusiveness means from an HR perspective and how you can affect some change. Part of your role surely is in following the evolving trends, the evolving notion of, of, of what is discrimination. We see almost on a monthly, yearly basis, perceptions change within society. You've got your non-negotiables. We all know what they are, but then there are always shifts as well. There are societal shifts in, in things that perhaps would have been acceptable a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. Part of your job is keeping up with that, isn't it? Yes, it is. So we obviously are governed by employment law changes that we have to then translate into the working world. But actually, you're right. It's around, you know, we if you're going to talk about the conversation around pronouns. Now, this is not a conversation that happened 10 years ago. I'm not sure it was a conversation that happened a year ago in many businesses. And, you know, for myself, you have to really either consider that you so I do say my pronouns and the reason I say my pronouns is because I went and listened in a couple of different networking groups why it was important for somebody to to display them. So what that means to somebody who chooses to use pronouns in whatever way they choose is that I'm saying I'm a safe space for you to come and talk to me about this. So if there's somebody that um, is was known as her she and is now known as he him, then actually it's saying I'm okay if you come and have that conversation around pronouns with me. Now, there are some businesses that have been asking people to put their pronouns on email addresses, for example, and quite a conversation around that without necessarily understanding the the origins. And I think that's where we come to in, in terms of HR is that, yes, we've got employment law changes, we've got cultural and societal things which are going on. Um, it's really difficult, right, to keep up about what you're supposed to be doing or not doing. To be clear, this is me putting on a devil's advocate hat, but have we become too attentive to people's feelings? Have we, have we become too, and I'm not just talking about the pronoun question, I'm talking well beyond that. Have we not become a little bit too alert to people's wishes and feelings and shouldn't they just get on with doing their job? So I will say that we need to treat people fairly, but we also need to treat them according to their needs. And so when we employ somebody, we employ them to do their role. But we also have an obligation to look after the person that fulfills that role, who is in that role. And when I say we have to treat people fairly, we do that through our policies, practices, you know, procedures. When we talk about adjusting it to their needs, well, that person may need some additional conversation, support, whatever it might be. So I don't think it's pampering to the the most recent trend or, you know, not knowing. I think it's just about having common sense and having a conversation and treating the person as a person. 
There must, however, from an HR standpoint, be an element of fear of having that conversation openly and honestly through fear of transgressing a policy by the very definition of having that conversation. On the one hand, you want to ensure that you don't make assumptions. You want to ensure that you don't make judgments. But on the other hand, you may well be afraid to have the conversation in the first place. And actually, is that not okay just to say, okay, thank you for bringing that to me. Thank you for trusting me with that information. I've never come across this situation before. So I want to talk that through. How can I best support you? You know, what support channels do you have in place? Um, can we use this as a way to educate each other? That's new. The, the, as, the, as the HR professional in the room who someone has gone to, you're smiling at me in a way that says, ha, huh, that got you, didn't it, Nick? The, the HR professional in the room, they've got an employee who's approached them. That could be a young employee, a vulnerable employee. The employee is looking for help and the HR professional says, got to be honest, uh, this is a new one for me. So let's take this back to the beginning. You're saying that's okay. I'm saying that we are all human. And actually what I would want to do then is potentially seek specialist advice. So the same way as I would lean on my employment lawyers to support in a particularly difficult case, or I would go, and we talked about this in another series, you know, episode around domestic abuse. Actually, if you recognize, you listen, and then you refer or you seek support. So there when we go back to that standpoint point at the beginning, I can only give advice. No, actually, that's not true. I cannot only give advice on my own experience, but I can only necessarily process things through my own standpoint. I can go and get training. I can go and seek special support. I can work with that person um, through whatever it is the conversation may be. And Maybe that's where in the HR world, this is where I say, you know, I can be an ally or I am an ally to the conversation around inclusion. I definitely am not living the same life or experiencing the same things as, as somebody else. What happens for a business or an HR professional when they suspect or through their own prejudice and bias want to believe that someone is using, for want of a better phrase, Alice, the inclusion card um, to gain some form of leverage or to gain some form of um, compensation or perhaps to find a way out of a job that they don't want to be in. What happens when an employer thinks that is happening? Yeah, I mean, this is again where I would say my HR instinct is you fall back on process. So when we talk about perspectives, you know, we can, we do, this is where mediation comes in, right? That you've got the employee and the employer. As HR, you potentially are the middle ground trying to provide that individual or that, that advice, that, that different point of view. But for me, you fall back on, okay, let's do a fact find. Let's look at the investigation. Let's actually talk to, let's see where we can go. You know, it's not around proving right or wrong because usually there's some gray somewhere. So, you know, I have had situations where people have bought the fact that they felt that they had been victimized within the workplace 
and I obviously can't go into to details of particular cases, but, but this the company's happens name a lot. Was. No, <laughs> no, but this this does happen more and more. Do I feel that those businesses have victimised those individuals? I was unable to find evidence of that being the situation. Do I feel that that individual has been victimised or in life in for various different reasons? Yeah, I probably do. I do think society has shown discrimination towards them. Do I feel that they have been classed in a particular way by other people? Yes. That's incredibly difficult to then unpick in the workplace. And that's why I say my instinct says I have to fall back on process. I have to go back to the, the nuts and bolts of it all and really go through and listen and come to a conclusion if we do think that is the case or not. And in that process, how much is based, you talk about fact find, how yeah. much is based on fact and how much is based on experience? By that, I mean, <laughs> deep inhalation of breath from Alice. By that, I mean, you're in a situation where someone is claiming some form of discrimination. It could be anything. And the facts would suggest maybe that that was unlikely, that it that it, it wasn't deliberate or it didn't happen. But that person is saying, yes, but my experience was that I felt that way. Which wins? I don't think anybody wins in those situations. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do is potentially trying to get people to see that the other person's point of view might still be valid. So it's such a fine line because from and an I can see you I can see you're treading it very carefully. From an employment law point of view, there are you you run you run the case. You run the case through. You look at the risk, you look at does it meet the criteria, is it this, is it this? However, you also know that potentially potentially there could be something behind this. Now, it's what you do with that afterwards. And this is, you know, it's not okay to have a situation where somebody feels like they are being excluded because of race. That's not okay. If that is brought to the conversation and brought to the agenda, how a company or a leader processes and I mean that in the sense of takes on that information and then potentially does something with that puts practice in place that says okay we were unaware that that was happening but now you have brought that to our attention we'd like you to work with us to try and make sure that doesn't happen again then actually that isn't a win or lose situation but again I hesitate because I feel that that doesn't happen as much as it should. For more information about the HR services offered by Peony and Magnolia, head over to peonyandmagnolia.com. There, you can join the mailing list so you can receive the latest thoughts and advice from Alice directly into your mailbox. Is it important at this stage to, to remember the cost that can be incurred by a business, not only the compensatory cost, which we'll come to in a moment, but also the cost to morale, the cost to their reputation as well. Uh, there have been some extremely high profile cases. There was Samir Ahmed, uh, the case at the BBC, uh, who was awarded, I think, well over half a million pounds, having 
displayed and proven discrimination in the high court. There are other well-known case studies around, around um, you know, a woman losing her job shortly after announcing she was pregnant and, and evidencing that it was probably related to the fact that she had um, announced that she was pregnant rather than performance issues. The cost to businesses can be very high. They can, they can be very high. And, you know, um, you're saying around the, the performance and pregnancy, there was a case which cost over £40,000. Now, actually, what was, was awarded £40,000, the cost to the business is actually significantly more because, you know, when we talk about what's what's awarded in, in a tribunal, you've really got to think about the fact that that's had a massive impact on a business for quite a long period of time. Even getting a bundle ready to go to, go to a tribunal, I'm telling you. Tens of thousands of dollars. But also in time, the time element. So, you know, if we were to wind all of this right back, actually to the point of somebody coming in and saying, just heard something in the corridor that I'm actually not okay with. I don't find, I just find that that language was a bit like this. When we talk about how has that manager, how has that person responded to it, um, that potentially is the first step in changing a different pathway. We don't want to be in tribunals with high costs being, you know, we don't want that. What we want to be able to do is say, okay, okay, we've heard that. Let's see if we can deal with it. But surely it's scary for a business to say, do you know what? We messed up. We were wrong there because then they're opening the door to the claim. Yes. And actually that's, you know, again, a very good point. It's not about saying we're wrong. It's about acknowledging potentially. I think this is the thing. This goes back to when we, it's so complex and, you know, one case is never going to be the same as another case. Um, and then again, that goes back to where I was saying about, you know, the, your standpoint and the intersections of, of where these different elements come into to personally to yourself. So, you know, you could have two people sat in the room, both bringing a claim and one person's actually got, a, you know, a completely different claim to somebody else. But the topics are similar. Does it, I don't know if that makes sense. It makes but- complete sense. I'm wondering whether this is also where two of your favourite words come into play without and prejudice, because there must be instances where a business will have to respond to a claim and will say without prejudice, so you can't use this in court, but we acknowledge that were this to happen again, we would probably want to do it differently. Is this where the buffer sits between resolving issues and changing practices and actually finding yourself at a tribunal? And I think that really much depends on the culture of the business. I think, yes. Um, and again, we've talked about this before in other um, episodes. This is where HR is around managing risk because, you know, if you're at the point where you're having a without prejudice conversation, if you're at the point where you're investigating something which you feel is around inclusion or diversity, if you're at these points, you already know there is something going on. Uh, like, Fundamentally, I can tell you that it has taken one person to come forward to say something, but the likelihood is culturally there are things which are not working. Now, we go back to the fact that, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the rock face and the difficult part of HR. It's not all around that. It's around, you know, leaders genuinely wanting to change how their culture 
is through considering inclusion, through considering diversity, through considering breaking down the barriers to all of that. That's that's kind of, you know, if you're going to take it back full circle where you can have a bigger impact and actually surely that's where you need to put your investment, not the fighting end. You need to put it into it the, at the beginning. You're talking about diversity a lot. Let's talk about neurodiversity, which is a field which is ever-changing. Um, the barometers by which we assess neurodiversity have changed dramatically over the last year, over the last five years. This is a significant challenge for businesses to keep up with, isn't it? So I think yes and no. I think we have now labels, potentially, that describe people. So we we know one in seven people are neurodiverse. Um, what that means is that somewhere along their makeup, they have um, a different spike potentially. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that because, again, I'm not a neurodiverse specialist. I have read and researched some amazing, um, amazing people who who are. And actually, what I can say is. I'm really pleased this conversation is coming into the everyday working world because when we talk about those, I call them superpowers, when you talk about the superpowers that people have, this is what makes teams brilliant. If you have everybody the same, it's going to be difficult to get those, you know, completely random ideas coming in. You need those creative minds. You need a different... But what that means is actually managing such a diverse workforce can become quite complex. And it means that the normal nine to five may not apply anymore. It means sitting in an office, which potentially could have um, sent, caused somebody sensory issues, actually is not a very productive environment for them. So it's, again, it's it's bringing the conversation into the workplace Um so that you can support and get the best out of people. So I'm really pleased that actually people are talking around it a lot more. We talked about shame in one of the other episodes. This isn't about being put in a box or being labelled or, or, you know, feeling. But these are, these are emotions that people feel when they potentially, as they become adults, find out that they potentially have ADHD or autistic or, you know, whatever it may be, um, that's hard to process. Uh, but also perhaps that's the moment for the employer to actually embrace um, a diagnosis or an assessment which could radically improve the quality of life of their employee and radically improve their understanding of the employee. I know of more than one adult who has been diagnosed late in life as autistic it was the most positive thing to happen to them because they then had a benchmark that they could that they could um, in in effect use and explain the way they see the world and the way the world appears to them. It doesn't have to be a difficult thing for an employer when that happens. No, and you know, it can, neurodiversity is around you know somebody who's dyslexic, for example. You know, how what tools do you put into place? There are so many things now that can support technology has been probably one of the biggest benefits to somebody who is neurodiverse because we have, you know, the the text to speech. We've got the ability to change um the, the your screen, you know, the lightness, darkness. We've got all of these things which actually let's face it weren't around even 20 years ago you know um so yeah i mean look 
supporting within the workplace, even if somebody doesn't have a diagnosis, I feel is the absolutely fundamental thing around managing people. So we talked about somebody coming to you and saying, I need some support. Um, can I still talk about my pronouns with you? Can I do this? This is around opening up the workplace to be understanding. And this is when we're talking about inclusion. This is absolutely what we are talking around is being inclusive, understanding and can I say fair and flexible? Yeah. Being f- yeah, being fair and flexible to what those people need. And also acknowledging that it is the diversity that brings the the colour, for want of a better phrase, uh, to, to businesses. I, a very dear friend of mine is a consultant and he once told me that he, he suspects, there's no evidence of this, he suspects something like 60 to 70% of consultants are neurodiverse. If they didn't have that neurodiversity, they wouldn't be saving our lives. Yeah, exactly that. And actually, I couldn't give two hoots. I literally couldn't give two hoots. I care about the people and I care about if they are happy in their roles. I care about what impact they have. I care about what contribution they make to the team. I care about how the other team members are all working together. I also care about how we can support. And finally, Alice, this is clearly an area that you uh, believe very passionately in. It's an area in which change happens very slowly. This is why HR professionals like yourself are needed to affect that change and manage it in an appropriate way. Yes, and I, it's it's a difficult world in HR at times. And I would just say that actually go back to your training. Like I've said it before, treat people fairly, but treat them according to their needs. Be an ally and really, really check your own viewpoint. Because if, if you can do those things, it's never too late to learn. And I think that's the point, isn't it? Is that if you stand still, you're going to stay in exactly the same position. And something I've learned from you in these last four episodes, don't overcomplicate it. Yeah. Keep, <laughs> I will finish on a very lovely old CFO told me many moons ago, uh, just go with a KISS model, Alice. And again, this is something that probably wouldn't be massively appropriate in the workforce now. And it was keep it simple, stupid. And actually, (laughs) it's always, always kept with me, the dear old, (laughs) it's probably in his 80s now. But um, that's, that was a really clear point. You're not stupid, but let's keep it simple. (laughs) Where do we find uh, Alice in her day job? My day job is running Peony and Magnolia. So you can find me on my website, peonyandmagnolia.com, um, on LinkedIn, where I put posts and bits and bobs. And uh, you can email me directly at alice at peonyandmagnolia.com. And of course, I'm sure you'd be delighted to hear from uh, anyone who wants to share their ideas, their questions with you. It's been fascinating again today, Alice. I'm learning so much myself. I'm the layperson now. I'm just the presenter. But it's clear that HR is complex and simple in equal measure. Uh, It requires patience. It requires fairness. 
And it is life. It's all about looking after people, isn't it? It absolutely is. And thank you for your time, Nick. No, listen, uh, it is uh, It is Christmas. It is Christmas. It's been a very, very tough year for everyone, I think, uh, from a business standpoint and a personal standpoint. Um, I think all that remains for us as we look ahead to future episodes. Oh, by the way, don't forget, do follow uh, this series and you'll be notified of future episodes. But I think all that remains for us, Alice, is to well wish people uh, well over the festive period, perhaps a, a better 2023 and above all, just Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.